Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Jim Lair died a few weeks ago. He was 85. He, of course, hosted PBS's NewsHour. He was an anchor in public broadcasting for well over 35 years. He moderated a dozen presidential debates. With his Texas accent, he was affable and charming, but he was also incisive and unwavering when he needed to be. He was a giant in the world of journalism, and particularly in the world of public broadcasting. When I talked to him in 2010, he'd just written a sort of mystery novel. Yes, he also wrote over 20 novels. The book I talked to him about was called Super. It was set in the early 1950s aboard the Super Chief, the legendary train that ran through the American Midwest and Southwest. Anyway, let's go to my apartment, where I recorded an interview with the late, great Jim Lair. I know that you went to uh, a junior college, got an associate's degree before right. you went to four-year school. Right. My mom's a, a junior college professor. I, I find that often, um, often people who uh, go to JC, it's uh, because they're taking some unusual path. It's, it's rare for someone uh, to go to JC because they're you know, just doing two years here and then two years there, and that was the plan all along. Um, what led you, what was, what was your path? Um, the, uh, the reason I went to JC, uh, to uh, my junior college, uh, was because we couldn't afford to go to, a f- to the University of Texas. And uh, I had to go to work. And uh, the junior college in Victoria, for $40, I could go to school the whole year. $40. And I took this job working in a bus depot, worked eight hours a day at night. And uh, the, uh, but I also was editor of the newspaper, wrote and edited every story that was in the newspaper, wrote the editorials in addition to the news stories, and then took it to the, the local newspaper and they printed it. And then I came back to the campus and gave it, handed it out to all 320 of my fellow and sister students. So anyhow, it was a, it was a marvelous experience, but it never occurred to me that I would not eventually go on to college and finish and get a degree and be uh, get a journalism degree and be a writer and be uh, Ernest Hemingway or Ernie Pyle or one of those people. And uh, the, um, uh, the, the H.L. Mencken, for instance, had this library about the size of, uh, of uh, you know, of two bedrooms at this little junior college. And there was a librarian there and said, you, you want to be a newspaper man, is that right? And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well... There's a guy named H.L. You ever heard H.L. Mencken? I said, no, no. Well, look, there's a book down here. You ought to read this. This is uh, a biography of him, and it was written by a guy named William Manchester. William Manchester went on to write many books, including Death of a President. He was the guy who wrote the book about the Kennedy assassination. And um, anyhow, I read the I read the book, and I, this is what I wanted to be. And then I wanted to be H.L. Mencken. But all these things just happened, and I, I've just been so fortunate each step along the way. When it came time that, okay, now I was going to go to a university and finish and get a journalism degree, um, I wrote, because I had a typewriter available, I had a typewriter in the office of the bus depot where I was working. I wrote to 37 colleges and universities and asked for their catalogs. 
only state colleges, I mean, state universities. That I mean, there was no no private schools like Harvard or any of that on my, my horizons. And uh, I decided on the University of Missouri because it had a great journalism uh, uh, reputation and all that. And uh, I wrote a letter and applied at the University of Missouri. Working in a bus depot uh, uh, while you were still in school, um, working nights, must have been a, a great place both to um, uh, produce an entire newspaper um, but also to, uh, you know, a, a place where your thoughts are on, um, you know, literal places you can go. Absolutely. It was, it was, it was the, a, the best breeding ground I have ever had for it to be a writer. I mean, I had, I, I was at, behind a ticket counter one night. And uh, some, I heard a woman scream, and it was a very small waiting room. And I went into the waiting room, and it was into the it was a woman's restroom. The woman had slit her wrists. Um, one day, a guy was at the ticket counter, and as he was, he said he wanted a one-way ticket to Houston. I made out the ticket, and just as I put the ticket on the on the on the counter, two guys, two cops came in and arrested him. This man had just robbed somebody, and all this sort of stuff. Uh, one time they had uh, the Border Patrol was coming in and rounding up, because uh, this is South Texas, so a lot of brown-skinned people around, and uh, they were being rounded up as, uh, as illegal immigrants. Uh, I had a guy I worked right next to as another ticket agent who was filling in for me and whatever, and he, he stole money from me. I didn't know that. By, uh, by the way, he, uh, he sold tickets that, that, that were – he sold them, but it looked like they were – I was the agent – and so he pocketed the money, and then the auditors thought I had had stolen the money. And it was, I mean, I mean, I, I, I learned a lot about, uh, about the, I also learned how to speak into a microphone. You want me to demonstrate that? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay. Please. All right. It was the first time I was paid money to speak into a microphone. This is calling, this is Victoria, Texas, halfway between Houston and Corpus Christi. May I have your attention, please? This is your last call for Continental Trailways, 8.10 p.m. Silversides Air Conditioned Through Liner to Houston. Now leaving from Lane 1 for Inez at Nuganeta, Louise, El Campo, Pierce, Wharton, Hungerford, Kendleton, Beasley, Rosenberg, Richmond, Sugarland, Stafford, Missouri, City, and Houston. All aboard! Don't forget your baggage, please. Ten stars. That's what I award that performance. Thank you. Your first broadcast journalism job was at uh, uh, KERA in Dallas, That's if right. I'm not mistaken. That's right, public television station. Um, how did you end up in uh, in public TV rather than commercial TV? I was a, a newspaper reporter, newspaper editor. Worked. I was city editor of the afternoon newspaper in Dallas, Dallas Times Herald. I'd written a novel. It was made into a movie. Uh, we made uh, uh, $45,000 on the movie, which was a lot of money. This is 1959. Uh, no, wait, no, 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 no. This was 1969, sorry, 1969. The book came out in 1966. The movie came out in 69. And my wife, Kate, uh, we still had, we had two kids and the third one coming. And um, Kate said, well, you know, you always said you wanted to write full time. Let's do it. And she was a writer, too. And uh, so I quit to write full-time. And the public television station in Dallas, I'd only been on television one time. And that was kind of a local meet-the-press type thing. And they, they called me and asked me if I would be a consultant to them for news and public affairs, work two days a week. 
they didn't do any programs. So I figured, you know, what the hell have I got to lose? <laughs> and uh, it was great. And then we one thing led to another, and we decided to try an experimental news program. Got a Ford Foundation grant. I wrote a proposal. And Fred Friendly, the famed Fred Friendly, who was in with the Ford Foundation, funded us. And uh, suddenly I was on television, and I hired nothing but newspaper, former newspaper reporters and uh, did that for two, uh, two years. And, and then I was offered an opportunity to go to PBS, to go to, uh, go to Washington. And I, I never worked in commercial television. Uh, I, I never, ever – in fact, at the University of Missouri School of Journalism, to be on television, I mean, give me a break. I mean, that's not serious. People don't go on television. Serious people write for newspapers and magazines. So I, I didn't take any courses. I had no longing to do it at all, no no desire to do it. But I had the opportunity, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, it was uh, – uh, I, I never turned back, and I have, as I say, I've never worked in any other kind of television but public television, and I've been blessed to be with uh, – with people who shared all my values and all my aspirations has been terrific. It must have been exciting to uh, get involved in public television at a time when public television was really figuring out what it was and what it could be. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was... uh, it was kind of created as a result of a of a uh, of a meeting, you know. There were some people who thought, well, no, we've got this thing here. It's called educational television. Now, educational television was, you know, television from the classroom, and there was television stations all over the country. Education, because it had been mandated by Congress, and then somebody said, well, let's let's do more than just ed- that's more than than classroom stuff. Well, let's do things for children. And Sesame Street got developed, and they were they started doing documentaries. And I came the time I came in uh, uh, with with KERA and then the PBS. Uh, PBS had just been formed, the Public Broadcasting Service, which is everybody calls it's a network. It's not a network at all. It's essentially a programming service. It's a cooperative. It's run by all the three or more than 300 public television stations, and and it keeps reinventing itself all the time. It had it, the purposes uh, kind of remain the same, but uh, there's always been funding problems in public broadcasting, and they're always. <laughs> you don't have to tell yeah, me. Yeah, we're yeah. sitting in my second bedroom. <laughs> have you heard? If you heard that, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it, you know the, the the interesting thing about it, about not having a lot of money. To broadcast in a business that requires a lot of money to broadcast is that you get your priorities straight. Whether you want to, you don't, you can't afford to waste any money on something that doesn't matter. And so you, if you say, well, we could, we could do this little cute story about, uh, you know, uh, pineapple Sundays or something like that, uh, or we could probably do something on the fall of the Berlin Wall. Maybe send somebody there for an extra day. Well, we we do the Berlin stuff because you can't do both. So that really focuses your mind, and and it, it exists to this very day. I mean, uh, public broadcasting right now, the news hour. We've been on the air for thirty-five years. We have financial problems, but we are more vital, more viable, and more innovative now than we were before, because we have to use our money so wisely. We use every little technology, technological thing. You know, you used to spend thousands, millions of dollars on satellite feeds. Well, you can do that now through the internet, but it's very difficult to do, and it takes time. You got to have you got you to have people, most of them young, who know how to do use the technology technology to our advantage, and it keeps a little bit of hunger is good for for people who are are trying to uh, do serious business in uh, in journalism. 
We'll finish up my interview with Jim Lehrer after a break. Stick around. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Oscar season, and we don't want you to show up on the red carpet unprepared. That's why NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour is here to help you sort through the nominees and separate the best from the rest. Listen now, and we might even help you dominate your Oscars pool. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my friend's favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. I'm Judge John Hodgman. You're hearing the voices of real litigants, real people who have submitted disputes to my internet court at the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I hear their cases. I ask them questions. They're good ones. And then I tell them who's right and who's wrong. Thanks to Judge John Hodgman's ruling, my dad has been forced to retire one of the worst dad jokes of all time. Instead of cutting his own hair with a flobie, my husband has his hair cut professionally. I have to join a community theater group. And my wife has stopped bringing home wild animals. It's the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Find it every Wednesday at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. Thanks, Judge John Hodgman. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're replaying my 2010 interview with the late Jim Lair. He was the host of PBS's NewsHour and the moderator at 12 presidential debates. He died last month. He was 85. You know, TV news is, by its sort of very nature, a, a, a linear form. There's no way to, um, I mean, it, there is to some extent now in, in new media, but essentially what you're doing is, uh, unlike a newspaper where you're essentially providing a smorgasbord of different stuff, everything from crossword puzzles to the jumble to international news to, um, you know, uh, real estate column. Um, television news is presenting something to you where the uh, assumption is that you're going through from beginning to end and, um, you know, paying attention to all of it, even if maybe you care a little bit more about one part or another. Um, how do you think that that linearity, that that need to sort of like make a judgment of this is the stuff that everyone who's watching should get um, affects your news judgment relative to, for example, doing print. Sure. Well, that's basically the old-fashioned view. I mean, it's the gatekeeper form of journalism. I've been a gatekeeper for over 30 years, and before when I was an editor of a newspaper, I was a gatekeeper. Essentially, you just outlined it. The stuff comes in, and you're known by the stories you don't do as well as the stories you do do. And it is absolutely right. It's linear. Now, the new world order in information is completely horizontal. It's coming at you all the time, and it's in your right and your left, and it's over you, under you. It's everywhere. The, the flood of information, you cannot go anywhere without somebody either yelling at you or, the, or telling you something that, that you analytically or, uh, or, or otherwise it may be true or may not, not be true or whatever. In the old days, in the linear days, we would we, the old-fashioned gatekeeper would 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 sort through all of that, and and then we'd have a neat and tidy newspaper or a neat and tidy newscast. Now the horizontal, what we're doing with the news hour, we are we're going. We're I've, as I've said a million times to people, I don't care if you watch it linearly as a television program or you watch it horizontally on a pink iPod. 
it's 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 the journalism that matters and what we're also doing and everybody's doing it we're not the only ones is we anybody if you're a if you've got a, got a a journalism uh, perspective that is real and that is verifiable and professional we'll make a deal with you collaboration to amortize uh, journalism that's where what we have to do the idea that that the newspapers can afford to send two or three reporters to city hall anymore forget it you know they, you, they may send one reporter and that person may also have to do television may also do blogs may also do radio things etc 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 and uh, that's what we all have to do all of us who care about journalism and are, are in the business we have to we have to familiar familiarize ourselves with all of the horizontal stuff and let the mechanics worry about how we get all that out there. Um, and and eventually what's happening now is it's become almost, there's going to be a reinvention of the linear approach because there's so much stuff. Most people do not want to spend all day in front of a computer screen reading blogs or listening to, ra- or listening to radio, not your program, but other programs, people screaming at Most each other. Most people do want to spend their whole day listening to my program. Yes, yes, right. But that's the only exception that I can right. think of. Everybody but that. Uh, but but, but I could, I, we, we would have folks, the new gatekeepers, they won't be old white men like I am. There'll be a, there, there's going to be a whole new generation of gatekeepers, and they're going to have to build trust, just like newspaper A and newspaper B and television newspaper, whatever. And uh, and they will say, okay, uh, I want to listen. To, I want to know what Jesse had to say today. But I don't. Ha- I didn't have time to listen to. It. I don't want to hear the whole thing, maybe. But I want to be. If I do, I want to be able to do it. But I also want to know what uh, what what did the New York Times say about this today. And uh, also, by the way, somebody there's some this weird blogger out here. And and somebody who does this professionally goes through all of this for for people. And that those those gatekeepers, those people who do that, are they have to build up trust and all that sort of stuff. That's where we're going. That's where we're headed. There's too much stuff out there, and it's driving people crazy, uh, in a good way. You know, all this information is available, but uh, we they they need some help. We talked about the the ways that um, resources shape priorities. Um, in in public radio news, there was always this joke, and maybe it's a, a little less applicable today. But uh, it it was that since since there were very few reporters, since uh, NPR maybe had a couple dozen reporters, they would mostly um, uh, read about something in the newspaper, report it the next day and uh, call it analysis. Mm-hmm. In a funny way, while NPR now, say, has a, a few hundred reporters rather than a few dozen reporters, and, and hundreds more if you count local stations, that perspective has been a, a strength of the form as, as those resources have grown rather than a weakness. That idea that timeliness isn't the only essential quality of news and I wonder what ways you can distinguish your news content that aren't just first and most. But um, it, it seems like public broadcasting is, is uniquely set up to compete and differentiate itself in, in other areas besides those two. Well, I, I agree with you. I think that um, uh, by the, the, in this new world order that we're in now, if you want to know... Did they arrest the suspect in the 
and the attempted bombing in, at Times Square, there you can find out in a second. All right, but, but who was this guy? Well, what do you want to know about him? Was he part of a group? What group? Well, what, where'd that group come from? And you just keep asking questions. Well, was the law enforcement thing right? Uh, what, what about the, why, why did they, how did this guy get loose uh, to get on an airplane in the first place? And why was he going to Dubai? Well, where, where's Dubai? What is Dubai? In other words, every step along the way, there's got to be a place that you can continue to go. And public broadcasting, in my opinion, is the place that takes you through those various steps. And um, and you uh, the 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 we always got to keep in mind that um, the old way of doing things, which is the first thing you it used to be the first time you heard about a story was when you read your newspaper. By the time you read a newspaper now, you know everything. You never you know what happened long before you ever see that newspaper. So what's the point of the newspaper now? Is to go ask start. Peeling it back, keep moving back, moving back, moving back. One of the reasons newspapers are not doing very well because they haven't caught on to that. They didn't. They they haven't hired the same. They haven't. They haven't trained their folks to move the story uh, with where the where the curiosity is about the story. And uh, in public broadcasting, uh, the news hour, we tried very hard to do that. And uh, sometimes we sometimes we don't. We fail. We do, it doesn't. It doesn't work. We cannot. We can no longer see ourselves as the first responder journalist. You've got to be that second and third. And you're talking. You're you're you you put your finger on it. This is still a development stage for that. Um, and you've got. It's got to be compelling. I mean, you got to realize there are all kinds of places you can go second or third time, second or third step after you find. Well, I already know about they arrested the guy. All right, but now who do I want to go to to go take the next step? And you've got it's uh you know well I you know I, I don't, maybe I don't, I'm not interested in the New York Times maybe I'm you know we, but you've got to it, it's got to all be there and those of us who are who are who are in this business have to uh, have to go with the new flow, and public broadcasting should be leading the way. Some ways we are, some ways we're not. Jim Lair, he died January twenty third at the age of 85. It was an incredible honor to get to meet Mr. Lair. The fact that he showed up in person at my apartment in Los Angeles uh, was sincerely one of the highlights of my career. And he was as kind uh, and engaged and warm and brilliant off the microphone as he was on. Uh, I don't think I've ever been more thrilled than when he said to me he was really impressed with the operation I was running, and he'd love to have lunch with me sometime if I ever visited Washington, D.C. I didn't get to have lunch with him, unfortunately, uh, but I am so grateful for his incredible work and his incredible career. I'll never lose the memories, not only of meeting him, but also of watching the news hour with my dad as a kid uh, on our 10-inch black-and-white television. Um, it, it, he, he was an unimpeachable journalist, and I'm grateful for his contributions to our world. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org, world headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where Kevin, our producer, and Christian Duenas producer here in our office were walking around when they saw two squirrels 
holding a total of three peanuts. They were unshelled. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We got help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows are Jordan Cowling and Melissa Duenas. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Uh, Like us there, follow us there, and I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.